Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... Capitalism, the market economy within which we operate, is not a single thing. It's a protean thing. It's something that we have always changed, and we can and must change if it doesn't work as well as we want. Martin Wolf on the crisis of democratic capitalism. The combination of a markets-based capitalist economy and a liberal democracy with universal suffrage, or almost universal suffrage, is really quite young. It's barely existed for more than a century. But what we've learned in that short time is that there's never been a more successful political and societal arrangement. All those tyrannies and the plutocracies that have been the default for pretty much all of human history, none of them has ever been nearly as good at raising people's living standards and at giving people the freedoms, the individual freedoms, to choose how they live their lives. And it's not even close. But that marriage between capitalism and democracy has always been a fragile one. In the last decade or two, we've seen that system come under threat from inside the very liberal democracies where it exists, notably in the U.S. and across parts of Europe. So what happened? Today's guest is Martin Wolf, the chief economics commentator of the Financial Times, and maybe the single most respected economics columnist in the world. And by the way, he's also someone whose work has been a tremendous inspiration to me personally. Martin has a new book out called The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. And rather than giving you a synopsis of the book and introducing it that way, I thought it might be better to just read a brief passage from the book itself. So here it is. Martin writes, quote, The health of our societies depends on sustaining a delicate balance between the economic and the political, the individual and the collective, the national and the global. But that balance is broken. Our economy has destabilized our politics and vice versa. A big part of the reason for this is that the economy is not delivering the security and widely shared prosperity expected by large parts of our societies. One symptom of this disappointment is a widespread loss of confidence in elites. Another is rising populism and authoritarianism. Another is the rise of identity politics of both left and right. Yet another is loss of trust in the notion of truth. Once this last happens, the possibility of informed and rational debate among citizens, the very foundation of democracy, has evaporated. Unquote. We cover all this, what to do about it, and so much more in this really wonderful chat with Martin. Here it is. Martin Wolf, welcome to The New Bazaar. It's a pleasure. Martin, you write that despite the historical success of the marriage between liberal democracy and capitalism, that that marriage is also inherently fragile, that it has to be tended. So let's start there. What do you see as the kind of always present fragilities of the relationship between capitalism and democracy? Well, I suppose one can put it very simply in the following way, um, in most of the organized societies, structured societies we've had since the agrarian revolution, the people with power also control the wealth of society, which was mostly, of course, based on land. And so the larger your land holdings, 
the more wealth you had, the bigger you, the army you could employ, and the more power you had. And that, of course, allowed you to take more wealth. So power and wealth were essentially combined in a few people, often with a, an absolute monarch at the head. Now, what we're trying to do in a democracy is to break that link in a democratic capitalist state. We're trying to say the people with political power are people who are elected, who may not have any or much wealth. They may come from very ordinary backgrounds. They're there because they've been selected by the people at large. And the people with wealth are governed by this government, which has been elected by the people at large. So we're trying to say, and it's, it's a core value, that those who control the wealth do not control the power and vice versa. That's a very sophisticated arrangement, and it's pretty obvious how it can break down, most obviously in one of two ways. The people with the wealth buy the power, and it's not particularly difficult to see that happening pretty well everywhere, but certainly in the US. And the alternative way for this to happen is that the people at large feel increasingly disillusioned with the elites who control the wealth and even the power, though they may be the same or different people, and they are subject to the wiles of a demagogue who is also would-be autocrat. Plato in his Republic discusses this process two and a half thousand years ago at length. So what happens then is they vote for a, somebody who wants to become an autocrat. And that person then uh, seizes power, doesn't allow anyone to be elected again, subverts the electoral process, uh, may put some of the wealthy in prison, seizes their wealth, and makes himself despot. And in different ways, that's sort of how the Roman Republic ended, through a military dictatorship, but also clearly by somebody who was in some sense a representative of the People's Party. So those are the two ways it breaks down. And that's why it's fragile, because we're trying to keep apart power and wealth, which is something that just doesn't come naturally. Yeah. And then on the other side, in terms of what makes this marriage successful, at least until recently, you note all these interesting ways that a market-based capitalist system and liberal democracy complement each other. And I want to just take one of many examples here. If there's a thriving private sector, then politicians have other ways of making money than to try to stay in power forever and extract money from the economy by using the levers of power for their own selfish ends. Uh, But maybe the fundamental reason for its success is, and I'm quoting you here, that both are founded on a belief in the value of human agency. People have a right to do the best they can for themselves. People have a similar right to exercise a voice in public decisions, unquote. It's successful because as I think I put it, wealth, if you like, the commercial sector, the private sector, insulates to some degree most people from the exercise of arbitrary power. Politics is important, but it's not everything. As you say, you can you can go back to doing something in the private sector. And if you're in the private sector and you're governed by a law-governed government, it can't just seize all your wealth. So there's a degree of security there, which is very, very important, that comes from having an independent private sector. There's also, let's be clear, these are pretty successful economic arrangements. It generates prosperity. It has been 
pretty successful at that by historical standards, remarkably so. And that, again, makes people quite happy to keep it going because they see opportunities for themselves and their children to lead better lives. And that's the other part in way in which the the capitalist system supports democracy. But it works the other way round too. One of the gr- real dangers, and we've known this for a long time, Adam Smith was well aware of it, is that the private sector starts generating monopolies, what I call rentier capitalism. And that's what happened, of course, very famously in the late 19th, early 20th century, at the time when America essentially invented antitrust policy to deal with that. Well, that's democracy saving the market, just as the market can save democracy, as I've described, or protect it. A dynamic political system, which is open to the the wishes of the great majority of people, can and often has, but not always, alas, limit monopoly and therefore limit the arrival of a predatory plutocracy. Inheritance taxes, estate duties are another way of preventing the emergence of a hereditary aristocracy. So in these ways, they can be profoundly mutually supportive. And that's why I think it's not an accident, indeed I argue, that the most successful market economies are ones that have are embedded in a democratic political system and vice versa for the most successful democracies need an independent private sector as you as you've said and the simple truth is that if you look historically all the republics that have existed in the past like athens and florence had a clear commercial base but more importantly all the democracies that have existed for any serious length of time now have also had a very strong market base but they have also had a government that tries to make sure that the majority of the people are actually benefiting from that economy and that's the dance if you like that this book describes yeah and in terms of the success of populist parties and the relative success of politicians inside the capitalist democracies you have what I think we could refer to as authoritarian or at least quasi-authoritarian instincts and leanings. I was struck by the particular role that you assigned to the global financial crisis of 2007 to 2012 as essentially the match that lights the tinder and that has led to the loss of trust and the rise of these politicians. And here's what you write, quote, financial crises are turning points, not only economically, but also politically, because they are visible to the public and so clearly the fault of certain specific elite institutions and people, unquote. Martin, this is really interesting uh, as someone who also lived through that and was covering a lot of its aftermath as a journalist, because I think a lot of us think back to that crisis as an event of monumental importance in economic terms. But we don't always draw the connection between that crisis and then the subsequent rise of these populist parties and of the parties that challenge that consensus about capitalist democracy. So I'd love for you to kind of take us through it. What is the mechanism by which that financial crisis uh, essentially sparked the fire that, again, you know, the kindling for it was there, but the financial crisis itself played a very important role in lighting it? Well, this is, of course, a hypothesis in a sense that can't be proved, because to do that, we would have to run history many times. And we can't run history many times. So we've got one set of observations or a few. 
But first of all, let me say that there's now been a lot of research on the political consequences of financial crises. Now, not on the scale of the Great Depression or the Great Recession, which were crises in the core financial system of the world, and uh, clearly in both cases had very big consequences, but there have been an enormous number of financial crises around the world over the last 100 years or so, and work by a number of economists, including Alan Taylor and Associates, the British um, economist who teaches in America, have shown really clearly that the political consequences of financial crises are quite dramatic. There's also been some very interesting research, which I also cite, on what happened in Germany, even showing that, that there was a bigger shift to the Nazis in the early 30s in towns where that particular bank had gone bust. And similar sorts of things have been found elsewhere. So it's pretty clear that there is such a correlation. So I don't think it's a big stretch to say, well, clearly the financial crisis was a big event. Now, then you have to ask yourself, what did the financial crisis mean to people in their experience of life and their attitudes to politics? The key point is that two things happened in pretty well every country. Uh, The first thing that happened was that there was an enormous shock. Unemployment shot up. The banks were all rescued. And this all seemed pretty unjust and horrible. And we know the sort of discussions that went on around that time about the bailouts, who was bailed out, how unfair it was for all the people who lost their home and all the rest of it. We know that. And that was the sort of immediate shock. And the point about a financial crisis, as the quote you use shows, is it's so visible. Most of what goes on in high places is for most people sort of unvisible. You don't understand what all the laws are. You don't know who they're benefiting. You don't know all the hidden dealings that are going on between the vast bureaucracies of our countries and the politicians and the economic forces who are paying them or paying them off. You don't see that. But in a financial crisis, it's suddenly terribly visible. The economy implodes, or that's what it feels like. You suddenly worry about the safety of your money. The government puts up trillions of dollars or whatever it is to back the banks. The system is rescued, though some people lose their jobs. Nobody seems to be punished. And that's already bad. But then in all these cases, not like the Great Depression, thank heavens we avoided something that bad, so we didn't avoid as bad a political outcome. But all our economies performed much worse after the financial crisis than before. And it's been very long lasting. So I think the most single most important chart on this I have in my book shows how far output per head, GDP per head, so simple average, I won't go into inequality or the rest of it, is has fallen by 2021 below what it would have been if growth had continued as it was between 1990 and 2007. And it turns out for the US, say, GDP per head is about a fifth below, 20% below what it would have been otherwise. In the UK, it's 30. Well, cumulatively, people notice this. They notice they're not getting better off as fast as they used to be. 
Uh, that's very visible. And then, of course, in the intervening period in the financial crisis and these long-run consequences, there was that period of very high unemployment and fiscal austerity, which meant lots of benefits that people had were removed and taxes were raised. So this is a very, very big shock. And it's a shock that hits both elites, the the democratic elite, pretty obvious. Many of them are also, after all, in business and so forth. But in the, on the right, I think the interesting point is it discredits what you might call old Wall Street Republicans. And many of the traditional Republicans of the old school Republican Party were bankers, financiers, business people, the sort of people who many think were bailed out. And I think they lo- lost credibility. It's true that Mitt Romney managed to get the nomination with very little enthusiasm in 2012, but it was not surprising that a few years later, somebody totally different, representing a completely different tradition and idea, completely outside the old Republican Party, came to power. Now, the final question, which I don't discuss at great length in the book, but uh, perhaps I should, I just touch on it, is why do they go for the right rather than the left? Um, there are right populists and left populists. And by and large, if you look at developed countries, they've gone for right populists more than left populists. And I think there are several reasons for that. And the same thing happened, of course, in the interwar period. The most important one is if you've had a big economic crisis, and particularly if it comes after after a long period of rather poor economic performance for many people, all the things I discuss as well, then what happens, I think, is the social response is anger, not hope. And the basic left populist promise, the promise is we can make everything much better for you. And I think the people basically have become so disillusioned about politics, they just don't believe that. Very few, or not very few, but there's only a limited proportion of the population who believe that politicians can make their lives really better. Uh, they hope that Obama would, but I think part of what led to Trump is they feel, well, Obama didn't really manage it. In our case, with our concern, they didn't even pretend. Now, if you don't have hope, you have anger. So if a leader comes along and says, and this is what Plato described, look, all these people are out to get you. The people at the top are out to get you. And there are people at the bottom trying to get what you have. And I'm the only person who can protect you. And I promise I will protect you against these people because I'm going to smash them or drain the swamp or whatever it is. And that's, I think, why we ended up with mostly with populists of the right. There are some intriguing exceptions. Emmanuel Macron came forward. Again, he was essentially adopting a sort of technocratic populist view. The parties had smashed. And he did something rather remarkable, if you like, a reform package of the center. In a way, it was like that other great historical miracle, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But the more work I've done on this, the more I feel that he genuinely was a miracle. And it's perfectly possible that in the 30s, America might have ended up with a quasi-fascist then. Though not, I'm not saying like Hitler, but there were some people around like Huey Long who would have been pretty terrible. So... You need luck in these circumstances to have a fantastically successful democratic leader who will restore things, and we haven't. So we've ended up with these extremes of right and left, at least up to now.
Yeah, that actually gets to my next question. There's been a kind of ongoing debate about whether this latest rise of populist and authoritarian politicians has been the result of, on the one hand, economic disappointment, economic underperformance, or on the other hand, the result of longstanding racial and ethnic hatreds and divisions, you know, racism, nativist sentiment, and maybe concerns about the loss of social status. Your argument essentially is that these causes interact with each other, that economic underperformance can bring to the surface, can incite these latent, very ugly and powerful sentiments. And you even include this amazing chart, which goes back to your earlier point. Uh, This chart shows that the vote share of populist parties in Western Europe started climbing exactly as the financial crisis was heating up. I mean, essentially, the rise of the... Uh, the Trumpian element in the Republican Party, if we broke that out, and, uh, you know, the more left-wing elements in the Democratic Party against the Democratic establishment very clearly reflect this process too. So if you broke down American politics, you can't do it, everyone is in parties, I think you'd see exactly the same pattern. And you've got a crucial point. My view is... I'm absolutely clear that social and cultural change is an important source of grievance. The question is, when does it explode into political life? And I think the evidence that we've already discussed on the impact of financial crises, depressions, recessions, long periods of very poor performance, and even more when they all come together, shows that these become politically salient, or at least politically much more salient, when these economic factors are there. Remember, I mean, this is the most extreme case in history, but it's very, very revealing. Throughout the 1920s, where Germany had a, a credit fuel boom uh, based on US lending and a very fragile monetary system, which I won't go into, the Nazis didn't make any headway at all. They were there. There were there was lots of anti-Semitism and racism around. There was lots of uh, chauvinism uh, of, over the outcome of the First World War, the Versailles Treaty, and all the and of course the damage of hyperinflation, which was an economic thing, important. But the Nazis didn't make any real headway. Then the Great Depression came. And they exploded upwards over three years to get about a third of the vote. And I discussed that in detail. And the, you know, that's clearly not an accident. Yes, the Tinder was there. But if you live in a society where most people are pretty prosperous, you're all getting better off, you have confidence in the future, these issues of, you know, what's happening to immigrants, what's happening with African-Americans, what's happening in the relationship between men and women and all these other things. They're there, but they just aren't that important. But when the economics goes completely crazy, what else have you got left to, you know, you're angry about something, you want to blame somebody, and you want somebody who will lead you into some promised land, which interestingly, I point those out, tends to have a nostalgic character to it. It was so much better in the past. Well, in some sense, it was for these people. So the economic seems to me a trigger factor. But I'm not suggesting for a moment it's the only thing. It's just it answers the question, which is the crucial question, more satisfactorily than anything else. And that crucial question is, why now? Yeah. In terms of how to address 
these economic shortcomings. There's a lot of specific ideas in the book, and I'm going to leave it to the reader to buy your book and leave them an incentive to get it instead of going through all of them. But I would like to ask about the overall approach that you recommend. It's to essentially call for a new New Deal. So it builds on the ideas of Roosevelt with some slight moderations. But you write, for example, that a new New Deal should deliver a rising, widely shared, sustainable standard of living, good jobs for those who can work and are prepared to do so, uh, equality of opportunity, or as close to it as we can get, uh, security for those who need it, and ending special privileges for the few, and that it should deliver these things via an approach that you call piecemeal social engineering, which uh, was an idea that I think was inspired by Karl Popper. Can you just kind of take us through that overarching philosophy for how to approach these economic shortfalls and how to alleviate them? Yeah, I I, I, uh, will do so, and I'm well aware of how dissatisfied many will feel. I suppose my perspective on this (laughs) is revolutionary transformations have consistently failed. If you try to change everything, you tend to end up with making everything worse because no society can cope with it and nobody has the wisdom to do it. So the great reformers and the great reforms of our past, I think, have been those who have said, these are our problems of today. They're very, very severe problems. But within the context of the system we're familiar with, we can tackle them. It's an optimistic view, but it's a view that is also not incredibly threatening because it doesn't tell people, we're going to take everything away from you. you. We're not starting a revolutionary war. We're not starting a civil war. And I think, as, since I wrote this book, in part, obviously for an American audience, because it's the most important democracy, and in my view, alas, the most threatened. So I thought that I should anchor this not in a, one of the European social democratic figures, the great social democratic figures of, say, Targa Erlander in Sweden or Clement Attlee in, in the UK, because they're very remote and the social democratic tradition, which I believe in, in the European context, doesn't have an American parallel. Uh, I think it's a pity, but that's how it is. So the obvious person to anchor this in is the person who I believe beyond doubt was the greatest democratic leader of the 20th century and who basically saved the system. He wasn't perfect, but I think without FDR... God knows what would have happened in the face of the challenges of the Great Depression and German and Japanese militarism. And his approach, and I read quite a bit about him in doing this, he was the right sort of demagogue. He was a populist, but he was a populist who allied his populism to serious reform and reformers. He employed some wonderful people to to do the reforms, and he was very experimental, which I think is very sensible. That's a good way to do piecemeal social engineering because we never know what will work. And he created Social Security, for example, and there were some terrible defects in it, which you know all about because they didn't cover farm workers. Why didn't they cover farm workers? Because the Southern Democrats didn't want any anything to help the blacks who work for them, and that's African-Americans who worked for them. That was an absolute scandal, but that's political realism, alas. Uh, But anyway, 
He, he put forward this wonderful speech, which I quote in 41, the speech in which he went on to talk about the four freedoms. It's, it's a marvelous speech. And he did lay out, look, these are the things we need to do to make the people of our country believe that they live in a good country with a good system in which they will have opportunities, they will have dignity, they will be looked after, but they are also masters of their own fate. I thought this was very inspiring, and it provides a nice framework for thinking about the sorts of things you would want to do. And while I call it piecemeal social engineering, because in each area, I'm not saying get rid of everything and start anew, but cumulatively, it's a big deal. If everybody, if anybody did all the things I suggested, and they won't, we would change quite a bit in the tax system, in uh, how we support growth, in uh, the social security system, pretty obviously, universal health care in some form, all the other things that America clearly needs. This provided, I think, a very useful framework. Now, I'm not opposed to those people who say we should make well-being the center of policy. I just think it's very difficult to know how to do that. And I still think the things I talked about are part of that. Um, security includes, of course, protection against uh, mental illness and illness more broadly. So there are lots of things to do with well-being there. They all come in to this sort of discussion. But I think it was a nice framework, perhaps a bit backward looking, but since people are being nostalgic about the past, why not be nostalgic about somebody who, act <laughs> somebody who actually did something useful for the country and the world and created uh, the post-war system, which really on the whole worked very, very well, at least in the West and which many others have tried to replicate since elsewhere. So it seemed a good a framework. And the approach is... These are things we want to do. Now, what can we do within our system with the, the many policy tools we have to help bring them about? That takes a lot of expertise, so I'm, we need governments with expertise. But there's a key idea here, which is capitalism, the market economy within which we operate, is not a single thing. It's a protean thing. It's something that we have always changed and we can and must change if it doesn't work as well as we want. So to take one example, I stress, it's pretty clearly competition policy has gone absent over the last 30 years, and it has to be restored. And I think one of the good things the Biden administration is doing is to try and recreate a purposive competition policy. It's just ludicrous how, in my view, how the big techs companies have been allowed to turn themselves into monopolies by buying every single potential competitor. That shouldn't have been allowed. That's, that would be quite revolutionary if you stop that. Yeah. And in terms of recovering the belief in universal suffrage democracy or reanimating it, maybe, uh, you write that we have to recover the idea of citizenship. And I'm just going to quote you briefly. You write, we cannot just think as consumers, workers, business owners, savers, or investors. We must think as citizens, unquote. What does that mean, to think as a citizen? Well, I suppose the basic idea is, as I said, we are a social species, and there are things we do together and have to do together which are the framework for our existence as an organized society. The most important aspects of these 
are the legal system within which we operate, which affects everything, including all the regulatory structures. It just permeates everything. And the, the protective institutions on which we ineluctably depend, the police forces, the, the schools, the hospitals, the, um, of course, the armed forces that protect us against enemies. These are common purposes, and they must be designed to be common purposes and not just subverted to the will and whim of powerful partial interests. And that's what I mean by thinking as citizens. A citizen is somebody who is part of a common wheel, is part of a political entity which he or she shares with all the other citizens. And if they all think, look, we disagree on lots of things, of course we do, but what we're all trying to do is make these aspects of the common wheel, which I've talked about, work for everybody, then we're going to create a prosperous society and a society in which we can live with one another comfortably. This is not an easy thing to do. We're trying to prevent wars, civil war, which is a pretty common part of human history, putting Mm -hmm. mildly. And the only way we can do that, and the Romans were very clear on this until it all blew up, was by emphasizing the customs, habits, morality of a shared commitment to the common wheel. I call this patriotism to distinguish it from nationalism. I'm perfectly happy if people use another word. But the the basic point is if people have to ask themselves, and particularly powerful people, um, how far should I use my resources and power simply and solely to benefit myself at the expense of everybody else. And mm-hmm. I think the, if people in power, with power and wealth don't ask that question or aren't even aware of that question, then inevitably the, the social order and the trust within it, which is so important, trust is such an incredibly valuable economic asset as well as social and political asset, the fact that you can trust people not to cheat you and all the other things, that will just break down. In a society in which everybody is out for himself or herself, the, the most normal patterns of civilized life will break down and people will start cowering away and hiding themselves. And this is true in very, very many parts of the world. You shouldn't assume that what we have will survive. I mean, inevitably, as a European, I look at American mass um, mass gun deaths and wonder how long that can go on, but I'll leave that aside. The basic yeah. point is, if without some sense of a public wheel we all share and a commitment to it, overriding our commitment to our own interests, at least in certain circumstances, and certainly overriding our sectional economic interests, We can't sustain a democracy because democracy is ultimately about accepting that the people who won the election are legitimate and we owe them our loyalty. That's what it's about. If we can't do that, it's not a democracy, it's a civil war. Martin, most of the book is about countering the threats to democratic capitalism from within the liberal democracies, from within the capitalist democracies. The one true external threat you write about is China 
especially now given its rise to global superpower status and which is now under the leadership of Xi Jinping. And you call for a combination of diplomatic confrontation and in those places where it's called for cooperation and to do it all as peacefully as possible to avoid military conflict, of course. I got to say, China's in kind of an interesting place right now. You know, it is facing quite difficult demographic problems going forward. The growth rates of the last few decades, which have been astonishing for its economy, have slowed. There is well-chronicled malinvestment, especially in its real estate sector, and maybe more fundamentally, the continued intrusion of the Chinese state, the government, into activity that's probably better left to the market is something that you write is likely to continue stifling entrepreneurialism and innovation. And I guess I'm, I'm curious to know, do you find that these trends make China more or less dangerous as a potential adversary to the United States and to the European capitalist democracies? I think that's a really good question. My instinct is to feel that it makes it, if anything, more dangerous. Mm-hmm. I tried to explain in the book why I think they have fragilities of their own, and they're structural. I mean, they're deep. That is to say, running a party autocracy, particularly one with a great leader on top of it forever, as it were, with all power concentrated in that, while giving the security and stability and predictability and openness that the market economy needs to thrive, that's a really, really difficult combination to pull off. And it's always been very difficult. And I would say there was only a short period of really dramatic reform, which generated then most of the subsequent growth. And it was essentially over by the end of the last century. I mean, the really big reforms ended, I think, with WTO membership in 2001. So that's 22 years ago. And since then, China has been coasting, but very, very rapidly coasting, as it were, because it's a fantastically able people. They have tremendous entrepreneurial and intellectual abilities. They're very incredible at organizing themselves, and they have pulled off wonders. But the underlying dynamic of the Chinese economy has clearly been slowing over a long period. It goes back, I think, already to the early years of this century, and it's got worse under Xi. And it's partly got worse because she has decided in order to preserve his regime, the communist regime that he wants, he has to crack down on independent forces, notably business, and re-centralize power. He's also noticed, I think completely correctly, that the sort of system that Deng Xiaoping created inevitably led to a mass corruption, because there's so much money around the civil servants who are in the lower echelons or in the party don't get paid vast fortunes, but there's lots of money being made out there in the market, so they're bribed in various different ways. They The bribery becomes a mountainous because nothing is legal, but anything can be permitted. So you have to buy the people who allow who permit you to do things. That's a defect of their system, and it's a core defect, and it's becoming obvious. Now, In this situation, I think they have two political alternatives in front of them. 
One is to go back to reform. But in this case, I think they would actually have to go further in the obvious direction of making the legal system more independent of the party. In other words, really revolutionary acts, because that would subvert this total control of everything by the party. And I don't think they can go there. But I think that's the logical step for them. And as you say, the economy itself is not going to be as dynamic as it was. So they probably have to do better policy to do as well. The alternative is the central control and the mobilization of the Chinese people in a relatively worse performing economy around nationalism of various kinds. And you can certainly see a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And she has certainly pursued uh, a more confrontational path on many dimensions. I mean, with support for Russia, with his building of uh, the militarization of the South China Sea, his policies towards the South China Sea, his policies towards Taiwan. I mean, that's the way he goes. And that, of course, risks ending us up with a war or even worse, a two-front war with Russia and China simultaneously. Not a world that I think any of us would want to live in or leave to our children and make impossible the handling of any serious global environmental or other problems. So it's very dangerous, I think, where we are and very difficult Very difficult. And China is a big part of the problem. And I'm very concerned about where China will go. They're talking about opening up and reforming right now. But I don't think I fear that she just can't do it. So this is very delicate. And I support, you know, democracies do have to come together to protect ourselves and protect our values, which I believe in passionately and make the reforms we need to make our societies work better. But we still have to deal with China, which is a rising power. It's still growing faster on average than we are. It's got an enormous population, even if it's declining. It will go on having an enormous population for many, many decades. And we have to deal with it and manage it. And it's going to be very difficult. Yeah. Martin, I was trying to think of the themes in your book in the light of what's happened in the last few years, and especially what's happened really in in the past year. And one of the themes in the book is that the glories of democracies and capitalist systems is that they include the mechanisms of their own reform, that they embed within themselves feedback mechanisms so that when things start going in one direction, they might contain within those very systems the things that are necessary to fix themselves. That is correct. I was I guess I was wondering if maybe we are starting to see some nascent signs that things are working that way. Not necessarily that these are sufficient grounds for hope, but I jotted a few of these down. And so I'm thinking especially of the policy response to COVID. Um, in the U.S. at least, you know, it was quite a large, some would say, I think maybe even slightly too large because of the inflation we've had in the last couple of years. But it was quite a large response. It was quite different from the response to the global financial crisis. And it's led to an actual reduction of wage and income inequality after decades of that moving in the wrong direction. There's been a kind of era of experimentation as well in terms of how people work. There's been a recovery of dynamism in the U.S. And when you look at what happened politically in the midterms, leaving aside the fact that the Democrats outperformed expectations, 
I think the really big story was that those Republicans specifically who were trying to threaten the electoral process and were supported by Donald Trump, all of them lost, including at the local and state level. Uh, And if you expand that, you know, China has had this very humbling walk back on its zero COVID policies. Europe and the U.S., uh, I think imperfectly, but did come together to support Ukraine against the Russians. And so I'm cherry picking the good things here, you might say. And certainly there's been a lot of tragedy um, on a massive scale in the last few years. But I'm trying to look at this and, and see if maybe some of those reform mechanisms have uh, have been activated. But what do you think? I, I agree completely. It looks as though, just to add some other countries, there's a chance that peak Brexit nonsense has been passed in the UK with the <laughs> dethronement of Liz Trust and her replacement by a perfectly sane and perfectly honest politician. He may not be good enough, but he's a hell of a sight better than his predecessors. Uh, Macron won the <laughs> presidential election. Uh, the EU has done much, much better at responding to COVID and now Ukraine and the crisis associated with that than I would have ever guessed fiscally and in terms of policy cohesion. And the Germans have really started what is for them an incredibly painful reconsideration of what was the overwhelming consensus after the Second World War on what Germany should be like. So I think these are very encouraging. And of course, the midterms the fact that Trump's candidacy is so badly, that Trump himself certainly looks like a diminished figure. And to be honest, the fact that the Republicans in the House have behaved in such a ludicrous manner. All this gives me great hope. There is always hope as long as there's life. And there's life in the system. It's not been suppressed. We haven't gone the way of, for instance, alas, Turkey. Uh, Maybe there's hope there too. Bolsonaro actually got defeated and he left power. I think that the Biden administration, by and large, there of its difference on some important things, has performed commendably. I think they made they got their fiscal packages round the wrong way. The the recovery package should have been smaller and the what they call the IRA should have been different and bigger. But anyway, this doesn't matter. The point is I agree. I wouldn't have written, spent all this time writing this book, sort of years of sorting out my thoughts, with all these long chapters, tedious probably, of discussing reforms, if I didn't believe (laughs) they weren't worth thinking about. I mean, my role as a sort of policy thinker is to inject ideas, even if they're unrealistic, I hope they're a bit realistic, into the popular discussion. I wouldn't do that if it's doomed. Um, The basic point, my my view, is we can't let it be doomed because whatever replaces it, we know will be worse. And we've got a long historical experience of what it's like to live in fully socialized economies or autocratic or plutocratic ones, and none of us should want to do it. If you want to see what goes wrong if democracy isn't allowed to work well with the market, just look at some of the South American countries, which are so depressing. So... And populism in this context is dangerous because so often it leads to adopting policies that just don't work. And you could see that in some of the responses to COVID by the Trump administration. But again, 
to their credit, I don't know whether this was Kushner or somebody else, the the Operation Warp Speed, which Trump sort of does, almost do, supporters have disowned, was a tremendous success. I and mean, we've shown again the immense resilience of our health system capacity to generate new medicines. So, yeah, in the end, I wouldn't have written this book if I weren't optimistic. But I think I will be more optimistic if even more people come to the view that we are in a dangerous place and we really have to do some quite serious things to get out of this dangerous place. And part of that is to run our economic and social system in a way that reduces the anger and frustration so many of our citizens obviously feel by coming together, by emphasizing what we can have in common, by emphasizing common welfare for all, rather than emphasizing everything that divides us. And this, I think, is important very definitely for the right, but it is, that is a message that I have in the book also for the left. Martin, I want to start closing our chat with a couple of personal questions. But first, I actually just want to flag for the listener that there's so much more in this book than we've discussed. And I would especially recommend the discussion in the book about how to manage globalization, economic openness in a time where we are worried about these threats to capitalist democracy and how your own thinking on that has evolved through the years. So everybody buy the book. It's wonderful, strongly recommended. And I now want to turn to something a little different. Uh, I've read your last four books, Martin, including, of course, this one. And if my memory serves, this is by far the most personal one yet. There's a real strain of worry for the future in it and even worry, I think, for your own family. And the book begins with the story of your parents and grandparents, and it's dedicated to your grandchildren, which means that you're sort of stretching back a couple of generations and then you're thinking ahead a couple of generations. And I'd love for you, if you wouldn't mind, to just maybe share something of your family history, and in particular, the events on both your parents' sides, both of whose families fled the Nazis in Austria and in the Netherlands and migrated to the UK, and in both cases, I think, avoided almost certain annihilation, uh, and how those stories influenced your thinking, your grounding, and the values that you describe in this book. Well, I'm perfectly happy to do so. I mean, mine is a common story in the sense of those people whose parents, one way or another, uh, escaped the Holocaust. But it is has bearing on what I've done later in my life, I think. So my father was born in what was then the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1910 in a part of... Um, its territory, which subsequently became Polish in Poland. His father uh, took his family to uh, Vienna, which was, the, of course, the capital of the empire in 1914, pretty obviously, to avoid the oncoming Russian soldiers. My father grew up in Vienna, um, became a playwright, worked in a very famous drama school, um, was taught there. And in 1937, he decided that Hitler was too threatening, that he was clearly going to absorb Austria and he should leave. And he was fortunate had enough money from royalties of plays and films to be able to leave. And he came to England. My mother was Dutch, grew up in a fishing port. Her father was one of nine. 
And when the German armies invaded in May 1940, he, my grandfather, very remarkable, self-made businessman who left in school at 11 and made himself quite prosperous. Um, I can still remember he died when I was six, but he was a really luminous personality. He basically hijacked a trawler, got the captain to take his family to um, England. Now, the the German invasion was incredibly quick. It just took a few days. So he asked his wider family, he was one of nine, so they all had children, uh, to come and join him in the, the journey to England, and none of them did. My father came to England. His immediate family similarly went to Palestine. Um, they're now in Israel, the, what rest, remains of them. But their wider family had remained in Poland. And these Polish families and my mother's Dutch, wider Dutch families were all killed in the Holocaust. We d I don't know exactly how many, somewhere between 40 and 50 aunts, uncles, uh, great aunts, great uncles and cousins and so forth were killed. But they survived. And my parents met at a party to celebrate my father's return from internment in Canada as an enemy alien, one of those strange jokes of the British. Um, so that's their background. I grew up, I was born in 46, so just after the war. My parents were, of course, refugees, quite obviously. They had no relatives in the country. We lived as a separate family. All the, the people they knew best were similarly refugees like them. And the crucial things this left me was, one, a clear sense of the fragility of what seems to stable life. Nobody in 1900 imagined anything like this could have possibly happen. Second, the importance of economics, because it seems pretty clear that to me that the great economic disasters of the interwar years helped create the circumstances in which somebody like Hitler could get to power. My parallel hostility to Stalinism, which my father ha had very strongly, and my great belief in democracy and uh, the democratic system, which had preserved the world and the world's order. So these values and interests, why in a way I became an economist, are very deep in me and crucially for this book. For the first time in my life, over the last 15 years, but even more so over the last seven or eight or so, I've begun to worry whether something not like that, I'm not saying that at all, but something which has echoes of that, the collapse of our democratic systems into something much more bitter, much more unsuccessful, much more hostile was possible. And I think that's what I feared. And clearly, uh, 2016 was the crucial year for me for very obvious reasons. This is why I started writing the book. Yeah, that's lovely. And Martin, if you'll indulge me just a bit more, uh, I want to end on an even more personal question. In the acknowledgement section of the book, there's a gorgeous passage of gratitude to your family and especially to your wife, Allison. And I got to say, it almost moved me to tears. And it was Kind of startling when you consider that the rest of the book was, of course, highly technical and, and highly analytical. And here's what you write there at the very end of the acknowledgments. Quote, in the book of Proverbs, it asks, a woman of valor who can find, for her value is far beyond jewels. In Allison, I found such a woman, and I thank her for giving me everything that could make a man's life happy. My gratitude and love are far beyond anything I can hope to convey. She has been the miracle of my life. 
unquote. Uh, Martin, would you like to say just a few words about the importance of family and maybe the enrichment that you get from your family, from your wife, uh, especially as you're confronting these larger concerns about the economic and political systems that we live in? I don't think I'm very unusual or interesting in these respects, but like many people, it's certainly characteristic of many Jews, but most other people, to have uh, a happy family life, to live with somebody one loves and respects and treasures and feels that she feels the same way for you is simply the most important thing in life. It is the thing that makes a life meaningful on an hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute, day-by-day basis. it, It makes the desire to go home and be with this person. Alice and I met at Oxford, so we've been together for a very long time, and uh, she's immensely intelligent, very, very successful academic. She's an advisor to the Prime Minister, a member of our House of Lords, and she's achieved all this on her own merits when we've had three children together, now six grandchildren. I mean, I can't imagine, so I mustn't say this, you know, my father would hate anything because we are provoking fate. But, I mean, the um, these are incomparably the most important parts of my life. And without them, I don't think I would have been able to continue doing what I do for as long as I have been able to do it, which is itself a great privilege. So, yeah, in the end, it is also for them because preserving a decent, society in which people are treated decently, making it much better, giving people the opportunity to live such lives as far as we can, I mean, that's a moral obligation. And, um, and I think for the great majority of human beings, it's what they most want. That's beautiful. Martin, uh, I want to say thanks, not just for being on the New Bazaar, but thank you for me personally for the inspiration you've provided. You've been a big inspiration on me and so many other journalists. And more important, your work has been, I think, hugely influential in illuminating the world. So for all of that, uh, thank you. That's a very kind of you. And this has been a very enjoyable discussion, if possibly a little long for you. (laughs) Not at all, Martin, I assure you. It was really, really fun. Thanks. Bye, Cardiff. And that's our show for today. We'll post a link to Martin's book in the show notes for this episode. Plus, we'll post a link to where you can find his columns at the Financial Times. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you enjoyed today's show, please leave us a review or tell a friend. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next time.